Okay, this is the very first episode of this podcast. I've never done one before, so bear with me. What I'm going to be talking about today is a little bit of a background on myself, and then we'll get going. So just to keep it super simple, super uh, to the point, uh, my name is William Garrido. I am the admin for Doctoring is My Passion, the Instagram page, the YouTube page or YouTube channel that is and the Facebook page. I have a couple of other admins on there. They're not active um, But they're you know a couple of other people, but I am the main contributor to the Facebook page So a little bit on myself uh, besides being the admin to all of this all of these social media uh, channels and platforms I also am a dog trainer, obviously. Dog training is my passion, it's the brand. I, um, I've been training dogs since 2009, and my experience has ranged from working with protection dogs, with police dogs. I've done some work overseas as a contractor, uh, working with the explosive detection dogs, with the contract working dogs, so the civilian side of the... Of the uh, of the work over there with the dogs and I've done some pet training as well as working with service dogs currently at this moment as of the recording of this episode I'm also an instructor at a dog training school I'm not gonna say the name of the school I'm sure you can figure it out if you do enough digging into my um, into my channel uh, or my Instagram or my Facebook um, but um I'm not going to say the name of that company, not because um, not because I don't like them. I'm very grateful to that company. They they have done a lot for me. It has been a, a great experience for me, and it is one of the doctoring schools I went to as a student. It's just to keep things separate, you know. Um, when I talk about dog training, it is me talking about dog training. I have a curriculum that I follow for the dog training school and we want to keep those separate. So if I say something really stupid, for example, not that I'm ever going to, but if I were to say something incredibly stupid that has no bearing in dog training, we would not want that to appear as though the company that hires me said that. So when I talk as myself, I'm talking as myself not as a representative for the company that I work for. So anyway, so that's a little bit about me. I also run a protection a protection club. Uh, the sport is specifically specifically the sport that I do is uh, PSA. I've done a little bit of French ring, a little bit of Mondial ring, um, but mainly PSA. Uh, I have had uh, some club members. I've done other things. But, you know, I help them out here and there, but my main sport is PSA. I am a certified PSA trial decoy. So I go to trials every every year to maintain my qualifications. And I am the main decoy or helper for my club. So that's a little bit about me, uh, a little bit of an intro. And now what this podcast is going to be about, it's going to be about different things that I see and hear about dog training in general. There's just so many things uh, that 
through my experience I have learned I've learned a lot of things the hard way I've learned a lot of things by learning through other people's mistakes and my goal is to get as many people on the right track as I can this is why one of the reasons I'm an instructor at a dog training school because I love to set people on the right track and that's just one of my uh, missions I feel in life is to do that in the best way that I can not in an arrogant way to tell people that I'm the best because I certainly I'm on my journey to being as good as I can be but not in a arrogant way where you know my way is the right way or anything of that nature I just want people to know that there are some fundamental things about dog training animal training and psychology in general that are never going to change some very basic fundamental thing fundamental things that will never change are the same for people as they are for animals and there are some things that are very different from species to species um, and I think what happens is the dog training field is littered with um, profits and and just people who uh, want to make dog training into a religion. Um, you know, and it's just it's just sad to get away from the fundamental concept of animal training and to go into religion so those are things that I don't like um, and social media of course does not help social media is great for a lot of things clearly one of the great things is you get to network uh, and you get to listen and learn from other people and it's much easier to connect with other people but it's also it's also a vehicle for um, for uh, just clowns and uh and you know and people who uh who really don't know and sometimes they don't know because they haven't done the research they're you know they haven't done the work and they just you know they think they know it or they just truly you know they, they truly are ignorant because of where they are in their particular journey and so when those people get on social media and and build a, a big presence or have a message that resonates with somebody and even though it's not right uh, then this becomes a trend and those are things that that you know a lot of a lot of us it's not just me a lot of us look at those things and we're like oh, no it's really not that complex or you know it's really not that simple it's a little more complex than that but anyway so that's all that is uh, the reason for this podcast is to do that. Another reason too is to you know share my thoughts, share my experience. Uh, I do like to teach. Uh, I like to talk about dog training because dog training in general is very parallel to just human psychology. There are, there are some things that are just mirror image and if you look at the experiments you know back in the 30s and 40s in laboratories 
These experiments were done on animals for the benefit of people, and to this day, this still happens. So there are some things that are are definitely going to go hand in hand, and learning about psychology, learning about uh, human psychology, uh, learning about training, and that just really, it's something that I'm, I'm uh, passionate about. I, I have books on... You know, I'm constantly reading and listening on the topic of not just dog training, but psychology in general. Um, self-help books, I'm, I'm huge into that. Um, you know, I'm very big into learning why we do things, why, you know, we make the same mistakes, uh, how we overcome certain things. And a lot of that obviously comes right back to dog training. It's very, very similar. You know, I've, I've had this fascination for, for that topic, not dog training or animal training specifically, but I've had a fascination for human development and I suppose psychology and, uh, and self-help for a very long time. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't really think, oh, I want to be a dog trainer or an animal trainer, nothing like that. But the thought of getting better at something always fascinated me. When I was very young, I used to do martial arts. I did uh, Taekwondo, WTF Taekwondo, WTF meaning World Taekwondo Federation, Uh, not the bad word. (laughs) So I did Taekwondo when I was a kid. I really got into it. I was obsessed with it. I thought about it every single moment. I did it every day. I I was fortunate to have a very strict, um, very strict, very traditional school that I attended and, and had very traditional instructor. Everything was done in Korean. The numbers, the counting, everything was done in Korean and everything was very strict. This is when I was a kid. You know, so this was definitely a long time ago. And I I was fascinated by it. I just wanted to get better and I wanted to get better. And I and I thought about it. I practiced it every day. I practiced it when I didn't even need to practice it. I did it and I got really good in a very short period of time. And um in a relatively short period of time. And what happened at some point is I got an injury, a really bad injury. I tore uh, some muscles and they put me out of commission for a while. So not only did I get injured pretty bad, but I also re-injured it twice. Once I re-injured it because I I thought I was feeling better, but I, I knew I wasn't feeling fully, fully better. So I wasn't fully recovered, so I just, I was so depressed because I couldn't do Taekwondo anymore, so I just went back into it a little bit too quick, and I started training and fell right back into it, and then boom, I just re-injured it, you know, and that was not a good thing, so it set me back again, and this time I'm again limping, I can barely walk, um, doing any sort of sports completely out of the question. The second time I re-injured it, so I, I re-injured it uh, another time after that, and that was when the you know the school bullies realized something was off with me, uh, 
and I couldn't defend myself. And so, you know, there was these two guys that kind of had beef with me that prior to that didn't really bother, but this time they knew I was limping and they just ganged up on me and, and I could barely walk. They knew I was limping, so they grabbed my leg and they started just, um, you know, moving it and just pure, just pure violence pretty much. I mean, they didn't kick me and stomp on me or punch me or make me bleed. They didn't do anything like that, but they grabbed my leg knowing it was injured and they, you know, they really re-injured it, made it really, really bad. And now again, I can barely walk. And so I was very depressed because I couldn't do martial arts anymore. It's something I was very, very passionate. That was the one thing that at, at a young age I saw myself doing for the rest of my life. So this happened, and now I'm depressed because I can't do this. All I can do is think about it, and I can't do it, so that's very depressing. So what I did is I got into drawing because I wanted to do something. I need, needed to occupy myself with something, so I started drawing. Of course, when I started drawing, it looked bad. I couldn't draw for crap, and that upset me. So instead of giving up and saying... I, I just can't draw like a lot of people do. I just thought to myself, no, I'm going to keep drawing until I get better. And I, the same dedication that I had for martial arts, I applied that to drawing. Not because I enjoyed it, but because I just wanted to get better. So I drew for hours every single day. You know, if, if I couldn't draw fa a face, I would draw faces every single hour. And I would do this for like three to five hours non-stop minimum every day and I slowly started to see the progress because I knew through doing martial arts this was the recipe to getting better at things was by doing it again and again and again so I started doing that for months and I got better and better and better then now this happened to me when I was you know this all of this is taking place when I was in Peru I was born in Peru and I spent my childhood in Peru but then at 12, 12 and a half or so, maybe 13, I moved to the U.S. So my father, who had been living in the U.S. for a very long time, he wasn't really in my life when I was a kid, but, uh, you know, right when I was 12, 13, uh, he wanted to kind of, you know, spend more time with me. So he brought me, he did all the process, all the paperwork, brought me to the U.S. And, um, so at this point I'm getting better, my legs getting better, and my drawing is getting really, really, you know, really on point. I still had a lot of work. I had a lot of improvement that I needed to make in, in art and drawing, but I kept at it. So I came to the States. Uh, my father passed away weeks after he brought me to the States. So that's a, you know, it's a completely different story. I'm not going to bore you with that, but I ended up living with my grandparents and you know I got here went to high school this is in Connecticut so I'm in Connecticut you know uh, freshman year right out of uh, you know right from Peru start freshman year I know very little English just whatever I had learned in school in Peru and uh, now you know completely different uh, environment culture shock 
And I'm not going to bore you my whole life story, but anyway, so what happened was I, I kept drawing and I did it every single day all throughout high school. And by the end of high school, I got really, really good at it. Like I was featuring newspapers. I uh, won a couple of national competitions in scholastics art. And I got an offer for uh, for a pretty a very um, generous uh, scholarship to to a couple of colleges and uh, and I and I took one of those so I did but then I realized that I really wasn't into it and you know kind of fast forward a couple of things that happened I'm gonna really fast forward up to this point so I dropped out of college my heart really wasn't into it because I loved drawing and painting I was I mean I was good really really good not to brag and I still am I still occasionally draw um, but um, just college is just not something I was into so I dropped out after one semester and and then I joined the Coast Guard I was there for six years and in that time now I'm not drawing anymore uh, you know at this point very very close to me joining i uh i met my wife and this was i mean i met my wife like 17 years ago we've been together for we've been married for 16 years already so i uh, met my wife and you know we started a family and uh, you know now i wasn't really drawing i was now in the coast guard so this is you know manual labor but the the uh, quest to get better at something was always there and so i started researching um you know the topic of human development and and i started researching the topic of uh, self-help and i started reading and getting programs on that and i always had this desire to get better at something it just it always had to be something and I would I would get obsessed with it and that's kind of how it started you know I, I wanted to get better at something I, if I if I put my target on it I wanted I needed to get better at it I needed to get good at it to the point of obsession well towards the end of my enlistment after six years or right about six years this is when I realized you know I don't, I don't really want to be in the Coast Guard for like 20 years so I started looking at different career options and dog training was one of them so I'm looking at dog training as a possibility and I'm thinking okay well how, how do I uh, how do I transition into that so I, I did I, you know I took I took a risk I, um, you know, I left with terminal leave. I went to this dog training school, uh, USK9. And when I went to USK9, I mean, they didn't take the GI Bill at the moment. Now they do. But when I went to USK9 at that moment, 2009, they didn't take the GI Bill. So I had to take out a loan. I paid for it myself. And I went to it. And man, when I got there, you know, I, I had no prior experience handling dogs, working with dogs, nothing. Green, green, right? So I go there and I find myself back in that I'm not good at this. 
and I had interest in it. You know, I was thinking this looks like it's really cool, so I definitely want to do that. Um, and I realized when I went to that dog training school, obviously through no fault of my own, I was new, so I was not good at it. Leash handling was awful. Timing was awful. Just the whole concept of training an animal was completely new to me. So I had to be back at that step one and now go through that obsession process all over again to get better at it. And I and I, and I did a bunch of things to get better, you know, from reading books, going to seminars, really pushing myself out of my comfort zone, working with dogs that I didn't even feel comfortable with, not dogs in general, but certain dogs. And if you're a dog trainer, if you work with dogs, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are certain dogs that are just not fun to work with that definitely give you the, you know, the, the hairs in the back of your neck standing. And so, you know, I did all of those things. I, I worked for this other company and I went to this contract. There was so much that went on in this journey of mine to being where I am today that required a lot of pushing outside of my comfort zone and obsessing over just getting, you know, thinking about it constantly that uh, got me pretty good, got me pretty decent. And not to brag or anything, but I am fairly decent at what I do. I'm not saying I'm amazing because, you know, in my mind I am. But for the sake of modesty, I'm not going to say I am the best there is because I know that, that that's certainly not the case. I know that there are people that are way you know, way ahead in a different part of their own journey that, that makes them or puts them in a place where I look up to them because they have more experience than I do. But I am very good at what I do. And my leash handling, my timing, the way I explain I explain things, the way I teach things to animals, um, my feel for the for the art of dog training and, and the way I explain it to people, um I'm pretty good at it. So this is where I am today and I'm still fascinated by that concept of how do you get better at something? And I see it when I work with dogs, you know, when I'm working with a dog, seeing that journey of them getting better at something is equally fascinating to me where I'm like, you didn't know how to do this and now through repetition and repetition and repetition, just like I did, you are also getting better. And I look at that and I look at it as, you know, the the owner or the trainer that I'm helping and same concept, you know, you are not good at this. How do you get better? Here is how you can get better is by doing this and approaching it this manner and moving your body a certain way and doing it this way and putting in the repetitions and the sessions and that is how you get better. And then watching the owners or the trainers that are in training get better at it. You know, the, the person who's never trained a dog, you know, in a in a matter of a few months, get them to a point where they actually look really good and, and they can confidently train a dog. Um, it's also fascinating to me. So the, the whole concept of learning 
a skill and getting good at something, something that I, I've always found very fascinating. And that's what this podcast is about, is every topic that I'm going to bring up. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely aim to make this a regular thing, not just a, a hit it and quit it. But my aim is to provide con- content. I mean, I've had the Doctoring is My Passion Facebook page for, a, for years now. And uh, and it started as, well, we'll see what happens. And I've been consistent with it. I've been posting something like every day. Same thing with my YouTube channel. I post something every week. Uh, for a period of time, I was posting a video every single day on my YouTube channel. So I'm, I'm very consistent with things that I put my mind to. And the podcast, I'm going to aim for it to be the same way. Obviously, you know, you all know life sometimes gets busy i am a very busy person i have a full-time job i work my own dogs i have a family i have two kids i have my wife i've again my own dog i have a i have a club that i run and uh, i have uh, club members that i help out on the side and so you know and i have um i have two books out and I'm currently working on a third book, so I do have a very, very busy uh, lifestyle, and I'm not complaining. This is something that I've chosen and that I'm, I'm very in love with. But you know, life sometimes does get unexpectedly busy. But yes, the point being, the podcast is something that I'm going to try to make, um, that I'm going to make very a very regular thing. Okay, I'm going to be talking about resource guarding. This was a topic that was requested for me to expand on by a former student and a follower on the YouTube page. So thank you, Taylor, for that suggestion. It is a very interesting topic. I have dealt with a lot of resource guarding. It's a topic that I understand very well. And so I'm going to expand on that a little bit more than maybe you have touched on in the past. So resource guarding, also known as food aggression, is a behavior to display in which the dog um, will do a certain or certain uh, set of behaviors in order to keep the perceived threat away. And if we look at resource guarding and we break it down, you have resource guarding. So let's break that down. Resource. A resource is anything the animal perceives as valuable. So if if it has value, it automatically becomes a potential resource. Some very common resources and very common displays of resource guarding or or aggression in in that sense is food aggression. So when people think of food aggression, this is a form of resource guarding. So resource guarding, in this case food, food is the resource, right? It is valuable. It certainly is a primary uh, or a biological, uh, it's a, it's a, an, an important and a biologically important uh, 
thing that is necessary for the animal to live. It has value. It is automatically very, very high priority for most animals. So if you have food, something that is of value to the animal, right? If you put it in front of the animal, in front of the dog. Now, if we look at guarding, what guarding is, guarding is any behavior that is meant to keep you or keep the perceived threat away, right? Or not threat, but maybe the perceived competition. That's probably a better word. So the perceived competition away. So any behavior that has the intent to keep the competition away, that would be the guarding part of resource guarding. So when the dog has a, a bowl of food or the dog has a bone or a, a treat that is very, very high value and the dog is consuming it, this now potentially is a resource. Uh, not potentially, this is definitely a resource. And if the dog perceives you or another animal as competition, this could pair up and turn into resource guarding. Now, not every animal, not every dog has resource guarding. Some dogs have the food or the bone in front of them. It is valuable. They are consuming it. They are enjoying it. So it does have value. It is a resource. But they will not guard it from the perceived competition. Or maybe they don't even perceive it as competition, right? Maybe they don't perceive you or the other dogs as competition. And if they do, maybe they just don't do anything about it. And so you, you see dogs that do very well in a scenario like that. They, you, know, you could get close to them. You could take the, the food bowl away from them. You can take the bone away from them. And they don't guard it from you because these dogs don't have resource guarding. But you're going to have dogs that do have resource guarding. You're going to have dogs that are going to growl, that are going to show teeth, that are going to do maybe some more subtle signals to let you know, hey, I want you away from this. The thing to remember about resource guarding, something I tell people whenever I talk about resource guarding is resource guarding is a natural, it's a normal behavior. It is perfectly normal for an animal to display this type of behavior. Granted, not every animal does. You know, you'll see dogs, or not dogs, I'm sorry, but yeah, even dogs, but you'll see species of animals that could eat in harmony without any issues whatsoever. And maybe in, in, that, in that picture for some animals, there is no need to resource guard but in some other scenarios, you will see some resource guarding even within that species. But if you look at primate, primates, for example, primates are really, really, um, you know, it's really easy to see resource guarding in primates. You look at, you know, all the way to humans. So if you look at, um, you know, chimpanzees, you look at humans, you look at other primates, you'll notice that there certainly is resource guarding, meaning the animal or even the person has something if there is a perceived sense of competition and somebody else becomes competition and this other party, the competition, acts in a way that it could take your resource, you're definitely going to give some sort of signal to let that other, you know, that third party or that the, the other person or the other primate, the other animal, you're going to do something to let them know, hey, 
don't take my stuff, right? Now, humans use language. Um, other animals use whatever form of communication works best for them. If you look at any animal, right, really, it's not even just with other species. You could say, well, yeah, uh, you know, a lion will resource guard from the hyenas because they really are competition and they're really, you know, just trying their best to, to consume as much of the kill as possible so that they get to eat. But this even happens within the same species too. Resource guarding is normal. It really, truly is a normal behavior. The big takeaway there is that right there. It is a normal behavior. So if your dog or if a dog you know has resource guarding with food at least, you have to realize that this is fairly, fairly normal. Okay, it's nothing out of the ordinary. There is nothing wrong with your dog. There is nothing wrong with the animal. This is meant to happen. You're supposed to want to eat all of your food if this is potentially a, a scarce resource. And if there is competition, you're going to guard it. It is part of the survival mechanism. It's going to happen. Now with dogs, we do get spoiled. With our average pet dog, they're not wild animals. They are domesticated, at least to a degree, but they are domesticated. They're, dom they're considered domestic animals. So when a dog resource guards, we, we as in society, we look at that and we go, that's unacceptable. I can't believe he's doing that. And we forget that they're still just animals. They are just animals. It's not their fault that they perceive you as competition. Okay, that's just their perception. Maybe you've never taken anything away from them. Or maybe you have. It, but it's not their fault that they perceive maybe your children as competition. Maybe your children have taken things from them. The other dogs, I mean dogs by themselves, if you have three dogs and you put one food bowl or one bone, they're automatically going to be competition. That's just how it's going to be. Okay, if you grab three dogs, even in the same household, and they get along great, you put one bone in the middle of the room, there is going to be a sense of competition there. So it is natural that at least one of these three dogs, if not all of them, are going to display some sort of guarding behavior. Maybe it won't be violent, maybe it'll be subtle, but there will be some guarding behavior. There will be some possessiveness because it is a scarce resource in this, really, in the, in this particular scenario. So dogs doing this, growling, showing teeth, freezing, when they have a bone and you're nearby and they perceive you as, a, as competition, you have to realize there is nothing wrong with your dog. Okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying just you know, they're animals, so just you got to let them be. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is, first of all, let's not freak out about it. It's not the end of the world. Your dog is fine. Your dog is, is, is a good animal still. But we have to look at this as a couple of things could be going on here. One thing that could be going on is... <clears throat> 
maybe this is uh, an inherent trait in that particular individual. Resource guarding, just like many other behaviors, sometimes they are inherently there for certain individuals and they're not there for other animals, for other dogs. So you'll have some dogs that you could take their bones, you could stick, stick your hand in the food bowl and you can pet them and you know, squeeze them while they're eating or chewing their bone and not once will they show you any resource guarding. And then you'll have dogs that you never even have to do that. You just look at them as they're eating and they auto automatically start guarding. Because some animals, some dogs, are more naturally prone to develop that behavior because they have different characters, different personalities. So some dogs will have that automatically. The other thing to look at it, to, the other way to look at it is, could it be a relationship problem? By relationship, what I mean is, if your dog maybe has had some sort of misunderstanding through maybe accidental rehearsal or accidental um, Maybe you accidentally did send the wrong message without you realizing it. A very common one is the dog is chewing on a bone and you start petting your dog. You go, oh, you're so sweet. You're enjoying that bone. That's awesome. I love you. Yeah, enjoy that bone. And I'm not saying that's bad necessarily. It could be. But what I'm saying is some dogs will look at this as you pestering them while they're chewing on their bone. And even though that was not your intention, this became the perception. Perception is everything. So if the dog happened to perceive that as competition, as you're pestering it, the dog could potentially go, well, crap, if you're going to pester me, I have to let you know that this is my bone and that you should back away. Therefore, the dog now could potentially resource guard as a result of that happening multiple times. So if it is relationship-oriented, this is something that can be addressed without any issues. Okay, And uh, here's how I know, too, that this is relationship-oriented, too, in many instances. If you are familiar with temperament tests, if you know how temperament tests work, this could be a, a, a podcast or an episode by itself, in and of itself, because that, that, in, that topic itself is complex enough. So I'm not going to dive deep into that here. But a temperament test very, very quickly is when a neutral person assesses the dog's temperament by putting it in different scenarios and assessing and evaluating how they respond to those scenarios. One of these scenarios, depending on the type of temperament test you're conducting, could be resource guarding. So doing temperament tests, I have done temperament tests in which I see no resource guarding whatsoever from the dog. And I'm, you know, part of the test is I'm pestering the dog to see how they respond. We're doing this safely, of course, but we're doing it to see how the dog responds and nothing happens at all. But then the person, the owner, the person who actually owns the dog will say, oh, you know, he, he does growl at me. Okay, so this could be an example of relationship. Doesn't do it with the stranger because there is no relationship. Will do it with its owner because the dog feels more comfortable with the owner. 
Sometimes the flip side of that happens. I've done temperament tests, and this happens more often, where the flip side of the previous scenario happens, which is you do the temperament test, you put the dog in that resource guarding scenario to evaluate their response. And during the temperament test, during that scenario, they will guard. They will guard. They will even bite the assessor hand. And they can get, you know, they can get pretty violent. Not always do they get that violent, but they, there will be some sort of guarding with a lot of these dogs. And you ask the owner, hey, does your dog do that with you? And they'll go, no, not at all. I could take the bone, I could take the food bowl, and not once does he growl at me. Well, what's, what's the difference? The difference is if I'm testing the dog, I'm the neutral person. The person who owns the dog has a relationship with the dog, so the dog doesn't guard from that person. So it can be very relationship-oriented. This means that if your dog resource guards or has food aggression with you, this could be somehow tied to a misunderstanding in your relationship with the dog. And this can be addressed. You can address this by working on your consistency with the rules. This could be addressed by working on the expectations that you hold your dog to. So looking at it that way, I can look at it as, well, this dog maybe does resource guard, maybe it does view me as competition, but we can address this. How we can address this, there's a couple of different ways. There is the counter conditioning and systematic desensitization. Basically, I tell the dog through this particular drill, I let the dog know, hey, I'm not gonna take your food. I don't want your food. And my presence actually doesn't mean I get to take away your food. My presence means I add value to what you already have. So then this becomes a counter conditioning exercise lets the dog know that my presence, while it's eating its food or chewing on its bone, my presence in that picture, in that context, means I'm going to give you more value. I'm going to add more. I'm going to make it a much more enjoyable experience by tossing high-value treats in your direction. So suddenly my presence, when you have a bone or a, or, a, or a food bowl, doesn't equal, crap, he's going to take my stuff. It equals, oh, great, he's going to bring me more stuff. So that's one way. The other way is through corrections, through positive punishment. So positive punishment meaning you do this, there's a consequence, timely consequence, and it is done properly without really going over the top, but using just enough to let the dog know that's not going to happen. And then the dog goes, oh, got it. Yeah, not going to do that, provided the dog understands this. Probably there's already some sort of relationship there. If there is no relationship and you do that or the relationship is not good and you do that, you, you give the correction, this could potentially make your relationship even worse. So very important to look at that option and be aware that if you're not doing it right, if you're not doing it with the supervision of a professional, this can potentially create more problems. But basically, you in, in either case, you are addressing, hopefully you're aiming to address the relationship where you're letting the dog know, hey, dude, you got the wrong idea. I'm not, I'm not competing for your bone. Or you're going, hey, you don't get to do that. But in either case, 
you need to do more than just those two exercises. I would prescribe more consistency, more training, more clear rules and boundaries in the relationship to let the dog know that things are a certain way. I'm, I'm not just saying a bunch of rules and restrictions. I'm saying fairness. Okay, this is part of the relationship process is fairness. I want my dog to feel safe. What I do with my dogs is I I have this verb not <laughs> not verbal, but I have this unspoken contract with my dogs. And my contract is is this. I will not make you feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to harass you. Not only that, but I'm not going to let anybody else or any other dog harass you. This means if I give you a bone or if you have a chew toy, I will make sure that you enjoy that. Not only that, I'm not going to pester you, but also I'm not going to let somebody else or another dog pester you. So if you're enjoying your bone, I'm not even going to let the other dog stare at you while you're enjoying your bone because that can be annoying too. I'm going to make sure that you enjoy it. But at the same time, I'm going to make sure that you also leave the other dogs alone when they are chewing on their bones. So I am providing them with this predictable relationship where I'm letting them know you can relax. I am going to be fair to you. I'm not going to harass you or pester you. There's no need for that. But at the same time, on the opposite side of that, I also expect you to conduct yourself in a respectful manner. Just like I'm going to be fair with you, I expect you to be fair with me as well. So I'm not going to harass you while you're eating or in any other setting. I'm not going to harass you or make you feel uncomfortable. But I'm also not going to accept unreasonable displays of aggression or any display of aggression period meaning as an example if you are chewing on your bone and you know part of my contract is i'm not going to make you feel uncomfortable i'm going to make sure nobody or no dogs make you feel uncomfortable you can relax but if i happen to be in the same room i'm not even looking at you and you come at me and charge at me to push me away no that's unfair i'm fair to you and in that scenario, what you did was unfair. So we have some relationship building and some bonding that we need to address here. Okay. What, what made you do that? What am I conveying that makes you feel like this is something you have to do? If the answer to that, well, I've gone through everything. There's just not, not much. Maybe in the past, in your previous home, this happened, but this is, your, this is not your previous home. So I'm going to tighten up things a little bit more. I'm going to go, all right, dude, we're going to have to restrict and limit some of those freedoms that you have. And we're going to maybe revamp our relationship a little bit so that you know that there is a little bit of a hi hierarchy here. Okay, There are some boundaries, there are some rules that you have to abide by. And I will clarify the relationship that way, okay? On top of all the things, too, I'm not just going to restrict and add a bunch of boundaries. There is going to be other things involved. I do want the dog to feel comfortable with me. I want the dog to feel comfortable 
in its uh, in its environment. But again, I'm also going to make sure that I don't see any unpredictability on your side either. And if there is, um, it is my responsibility. It is my job to address that. Okay, so very relationship oriented. I'm going to be fair to you. You have to be fair to me. Okay, I'm not going to harass you. I don't expect to be harassed either. So back to the relationship status thing. The other thing that I can do too is if I have a dog that resource guards is I could just put it on a maintenance mode. By maintenance mode, what I mean is, look, you obviously, just an example, obviously still see me as competition. So here's what we're going to do. If, if, I, you know, if I didn't want to address the relationship, if, if I have a client maybe doesn't have the knowledge or the skill to address this despite my efforts, here's what I can do. I can go, hey, here's what you're going to do. Just feed him in his crate, period. That's it. Don't even feed him out of a bowl. Uh, if, if that's happening where he's eating and he starts growling and snarling at anything that's nearby, just feed him in the crate. That is kind of a, that's not even a solution. That's more of a, we're going to live with it and we're going to do the best we can. But it's more of a maintenance, a management, um, more of a management strategy, which means, yeah, we're not really going to focus on that right now. We're just going to make sure that you don't get to rehearse it. So what happens a lot of times is you'll have people that have two dogs and they feed them together. So they feed them at the same time. And now this causes one of those dogs to resource guard and things will get pretty ugly. So a management solution or a management strategy rather would be don't feed them at the same time. Feed them at different times and separate from each other. This is now a management strategy, meaning we're not going to address this. We're going to live with it, but we're going to live with it in a harmonious manner. You're going to be eating separately. Or I am going to feed you in your crate so that you don't get to rehearse this behavior, so that you don't get to see this thing that gives you the idea that I'm going to take your food. Also, going back to being fair, if now that I was talking about these these two dog scenarios, this actually does happen. I've I've heard of this happening multiple times in obviously different cases. But people do that. People that have multiple dogs, they'll feed them all at the same time, which there is nothing wrong with. I feed two of my dogs, they eat at the same time. And I've even had three of my dogs all eat at the same time from their own food bowls. But here's what I do. The second one of them is done, I ensure that that dog does not go to the other dogs while they're eating. Because then that makes the other dogs feel uncomfortable. So if I have the three dogs eating, one of them is going to finish first. And this one dog that finished first probably will have the inclination to go to the other dog that's still eating and pick out some of its food. And I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not even going to let you go in that direction. You're going to let that dog eat even though you finish yours. You're going to wait there. Or I'm going to put you in some sort of command like a down or something. And you're going to wait there. Or I'm going to pull you away. That's fine too. 
but I'm not going to let you harass the other dogs while they're eating. Because if you do, if you don't do anything about it, and, you know, the two dogs are eating, one of them finishes first, and the second it finishes, it goes to the other dog. Even if the other dog has no resource guarding, this happens often enough, that dog will develop resource guarding because it will have no choice but to do it. Otherwise, it's just not going to eat. And people don't think about these things. Your average pet owner doesn't think about that. So important to know that I want to make sure my dogs feel safe, my, all of them. I want them to feel comfortable. If they're going to chew on a bone, they're going to chew on a bone. I, we, we don't even let the cat bother the dog, any dog. So if the dog is just there chilling, enjoying, having a good time, chewing on his bone, laying, and the cat starts stalking the dog, we go, hey, no, knock that off. He's chewing something. He's taking a nap. Let him be. You're not going to pounce on that dog. And we will push that, that cat away. Because, again, it is an unspoken contract that I have as a pet owner with my dogs. They will be comfortable. I will not sacrifice their comfort for the sake of uh, a dog or, or another animal that just wants to get an extra bite of food. So I will make sure that these dogs are comfortable. This addresses my relationship with them. It does uh, make, make it so that I'm not a, a, a person that takes anything away from them and that I'm advocating for them. So relationship, again, we're going back to relationship-based. Okay. The other thing, too, is because this is a natural behavior, I wanna I want to remember that because this is a natural behavior, again, it's not a bad thing necessarily. It really is not. It's only bad when the dog is flipping the hell out and it's unreasonable in its in its guarding and it's just going after anything that is nearby. Then it is incredibly important that obviously that we address this because that is not normal that's that's more abnormal that falls more on on the abnormal category where i get it it makes sense but you're way too quick on the trigger nobody's even actively reaching for you and you, you just see this person and, and you automatically try to light them up and i have seen dogs like that too so we're gonna wrap it up and i'm gonna do a little bit of a recap on what i talked about resource guarding we talk about resources anything that is perceived as valuable guarding which is any behavior meant to push the competition away occurs when either a there is a misunderstanding in the relationship or b it's an inherent behavior in that individual okay how do we address that? By addressing the relationship. I could also address it through counter conditioning, which in itself will also address part of the relationship. And I could also address it through punishment, positive punishment. This is more operant conditioning. Counter conditioning falls more under the classical conditioning and 
positive punishment will fall more under the operant conditioning category. Uh, another thing too that we talked about is I want to make sure my dog feels safe. I want to make sure my dog is comfortable. I'm going to be fair to you. You also have to be fair to me. And last, if counter conditioning is something that I can't do or can't commit to and operant conditioning is something that I don't have the skill or the timing to do, I could also do a management strategy, which is we're going to live with it, but we're going to make it so that you don't get to rehearse this behavior. And remember, it is a natural, it's a natural mechanism. It's a natural, natural behavior. If the dog does resource guard, there is nothing wrong with that dog. And on a final, final, final note, resource guarding is not always food aggression. It could be with toys. It could be with a bunch of different things as long as it is something that has the perception of value to the dog. All right, and that's pretty much it. Um, make sure that you share this episode if you liked it. Uh, make sure you go to the YouTube channel, subscribe, like the videos, uh, go to my Instagram, go to my Facebook. They're all dog training is my passion. And remember to check out my books on Amazon. Look up William Garrido. And I got the two books on there. I'm working on the third one. Stay tuned with that one. And I'll see you on the next episode.